on International Women's Day. Thank you very much for being here. We're starting now as we have a different format, and I need to alert you to that. Can I please have your attention? I know you're, you're uh, excited to see each other. Thank you very much. Okay, we're starting early because we have a different format today. We have two speakers, one who's going to be speaking at 12 o'clock until 12.15. Then we have, will have question and answers on that speaker's talk. Then we have our usual 12.30 to 1 o'clock lunch. Following that, our second speaker will arrive and we will have a 15-minute talk followed by a Q&A. So just to alert you that we have a slightly different um, format today. So we welcome all of you and thank you for coming. I'm Bev Mendel Atherstone. I am your moderator. I'm a member of the SACPA board. Um, we thank all of our various sponsors, including Shaw TV, who will be here shortly. Um, we thank also the University of Lethbridge for their ongoing support, and we thank Country Kitchen Catering for their wonderful support for our lunch. Please put $12 in the baskets on the tables. Have someone at each table count to ensure the correct amount is in the basket. Um, all right. Our first speaker will be Dr. Carolyn Hodds. She received her PhD from New York University in 2013. She joined the University of Lethbridge Department of Women and Gender Studies in 2015. Prior to her appointment in Lethbridge, she taught at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University in Kingston and in sociology at Trent University, Oshawa campus. Dr. Hodd's research interests include human rights and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Canadian and US feminist constitutionalism, and she has recently won a ULRF grant to fund her current work on representations of the body in charter equality and Aboriginal rights litigation. Our speakers are certainly appropriate for the International um, Women's Day. Welcome to Dr. Hodges. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Hodges. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll give you some. And uh, happy International Women's Day, a day late. Um, so today I've been asked to talk to you about how women, men, and non-binary people might get together and close the gender gap sooner rather than later. So my presentation is gonna first mind the gap and then outline the practical policy strategies that feminists have actually been fighting for for decades. So what do I mean by minding the gap? Well, the gender gap is never really about gender alone. It's also about how racism, ableism, and other forms of discrimination intersect with gender in ways that make some people more likely to live in poverty, in ways that make some people less likely to have access to safe, affordable housing, and that as a result makes some people more vulnerable to violence, more likely to become sick, and less likely to be able to access basic medications and health services. So the data from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Statistics Canada, and the Canadian Women's Foundation all reveal that nationwide, those who experience the highest rates of poverty are racialized women, 
women with disabilities, First Nations women living off reserve, single mothers, immigrant women, Métis and Inuit women living in the provinces, and single senior women. These poverty rates show that the gap doesn't actually stop at the intersections any more than it's limited to the men and women who are working at the same jobs with the same levels of education, yet still receiving different levels of pay, men of course making more and women making less. These poverty rates also show that gaps exist between and among women who are differentially located at the intersections of multiple subject locations and between all women in general who bear the disproportionate burden of poverty and those who do not. That said, the gender gap can't really be reduced to income deciles alone. How much each person needs to make ends meet is a very important part of this discussion, but it's not the whole story. So to complicate things even more, it's also about whether or not people feel that they have the capacity to manage uncertainty, job loss, unexpected expenses. In other words, whether people actually feel secure. While many people might identify themselves as middle class, Miles Korak, an economist in residence at Employment and Social Development Canada, and Kate McInturf, who's a policy analyst from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, have recently articulated that being middle class is actually more about how you feel than it is about how much money you make. According to McInturf and Korak, to be middle class is actually about having a sense of security, having a sense of control over your life, and having a sense of hope for the future, that you're actually going to continue to be secure, and that you're actually going to be able to do better over the long term. So when people are excluded from the middle class through discrimination, unequal pay for equal work, or shouldering the responsibility for care work without any supports, it isn't just about having enough to make ends meet. All although that's very important, it's also about living with constant insecurity or the feeling of precarity. So the feeling that your job, livelihood, or income is not actually going to carry you into the future or that it can be taken away arbitrarily. So overall, being excluded from the middle class is about not having control over the most basic necessities in your life. It's about wondering where your next bag of groceries is going to be coming from, or worrying about whether you're going to be able to pay the rent or the utilities on time, if at all. And most of all, being excluded from the middle class is about believing that these kinds of living conditions are never really going to change for you. So to mind the gap, I want to begin by asking you to join me in taking a look at a couple of tables of data based on the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives 2014 report on the gender gap. This study makes use of a custom data set taken from the results of the 2011 National Housing Survey. Overall, the report that was put out by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives indicates that the biggest wage gap exists for Indigenous workers who earn on average between 30% and 44% less than their non-Indigenous counterparts with the same levels of education. The same is true for racialized workers and for non-racialized non-Indigenous women. The study also reveals that education actually only makes a minor difference to any of these wage gaps, particularly for those workers who are employed in the private sector. Overall, educated Indigenous workers make 44% less than their educated non-Indigenous peers. University-educated women earn 27% less than university-educated men. And educated racialized workers earn, on average, 20% less than educated non-racialized people. So the data that I've taken from this study looks at the general circumstances of a relatively privileged group of people. 
Those who, based purely on numbers, may be considered by you in the audience or may even consider themselves to be among the middle class. But numbers alone don't really show us, they're not enough to tell us how people feel or how people would identify themselves. So look at these numbers bearing in mind that there's a lot that we do not and cannot know from the particular data sets that I'm going to be showing you here today. For example, how many children, if any, each person has, whether they live in a dual income household or whether they have dependent spouses or elders. So all you can really know from these charts that I've created here is what different demographic groups who were employed at full-time, full-year salary jobs earned in the public and private sectors at particular point in time. But what's most striking about this data is how starkly it represents a number of gaps at the intersection of race, class, and gender, and that those who suffer the most wage discrimination in the private sector are actually way better off in public sector jobs. So you may ask why I have chosen these data sets for my talk today. And the answer is not only because of the way that they reveal these gaps, but also because the people represented here are neither the wealthy nor are they the upper middle class. Nobody on these tables is going to be making it onto the sunshine list anytime soon. Nobody's income on these charts would qualify them for a place among the poorest of the poor either. They are instead among the lucky people who've landed that increasingly scarce and often coveted work situation, the full-time, full-year position that provides them with a salary, steady work, and maybe even a benefits package. These are the people whose full-time, full-year positions are often relied upon to bolster one of the greatest mythologies surrounding working life in the present and one that young students with considerable family support sometimes often bring into my classroom. And that's this idea that people go to school and maybe they work a little bit during their education in order to make ends meet, but when they graduate, they're gonna get a job that's gonna carry them through until retirement or until some kind of freely chosen career change. And this fantastical story often leads to the assumption that there's another job out there after that career change that's gonna carry them through to retirement or until another freely chosen career change. But I think that many of us know that this dream has never really been attainable for most workers in a gendered, racialized, and discriminatory labor market. And many people face considerable barriers to obtaining post-secondary education in the first place. Even with that post-secondary education, however, at present, like I said before, all the data shows that education doesn't fix any of these gaps that I'm talking to you about here today. And current Canadian policies really aren't working for those people who need them to work for them the most. And in fact, in some regions of Canada, the reality of working life looks much, much different than these tables. I come to Lethbridge from a city profiled in a recent report entitled The Precarity Penalty. That was put out by Wayne Luchuk at McMaster University in the United Way in 2013. And this report shows that almost half the workers in the Toronto-Hamilton region are working in either full or part-time jobs with no job security and no benefits. Or they're working in temporary contract and casual positions with no job security, no benefits, and no access to EI, even though they may be paying into it. That means that half of the adult working population in that region was income insecure in 2013. Wrap your head around that, half the adult working population. With income insecurity comes housing insecurity. With housing insecurity comes food insecurity. And with all of that insecurity together, access to prescription drugs and dental, a place in the middle class, and hope for the future become increasingly elusive.
This report shows that for many, taking on multiple positions and multiple contracts is a reality that people have to do to make ends meet. And this reality is something that needs to be taken into account across the country. I've not been able to find a comparable study that profiles up Alberta, Alberta. So if anyone has any leads, and I'm looking at you, Parkland Institute, maybe you've got some studies that can show this, please let me know, because I'm curious to know how many people are laboring under the same conditions across Alberta, or maybe I've just identified another gap, a research gap. But even in the event that you are one of those lucky few, one of the lucky few profiled in these tables, the numbers show that there are still significant gaps between the incomes of those non-racialized non-Indigenous men and women and their racialized and Indigenous counterparts who are employed full-time, full-year in both the public and the private sectors. What these numbers reveal, and here's our public sector data. So the private sector data reveals that on average, um, non-racialized, non-Indigenous men are at the top, and racialized and Indigenous women are at the bottom. And in the public sector, the gap kind of narrows, but what we can see here is that in both tables, all at all intersections, men on average are paid more than women on average who are paid less. So if we take into consideration um, the low income cutoff and the percentage of minimum wage workers that exist, we can see that 60% of minimum wage workers in Alberta are women. And the total percentage of the population of workers in Alberta that collect minimum wage is at 4%. In Ontario, it's at 9%. While the data disaggregates by age, revealing that over 70% of minimum wage workers are over 20 years of age in this province, contrary to the fantasy that it's only high school kids that work these kinds of jobs, that's not true. We're talking about people who are supporting households. We're talking about uh, middle-aged people. We're talking about people with children. When thinking about this low-income cutoff, though, Consider that the low-income cutoff is the measurement of how much money a family would need to pay for their basic necessities. Families below the low-income cutoff have to spend 20% more of their income on the basic necessities of life. In certain cases, depending on how much below the low-income cutoff families are, they may pay more than 50% of their income on rent and rely on food banks to alleviate their food insecurity. Another measurement of relative poverty is the market basket of goods. This is usually what's relied on to calculate inflation, and it also measures the basic necessities or the cost of the basic necessities of life. So thinking about the low-income cutoff numbers on the slide, I want you to remember the salaries that we just looked at for people who might consider themselves to be middle class. I would actually say that some of those on the lower end of this salary grid um, are not really middle class when considering the low-income cutoff. These salaries that I've just shown you range from between $25,000 a year for racialized women between the ages of 25 and 39 in the private sector and $76,000 per year for non-racialized, non-Indigenous men in the private sector. Someone earning closer to that $25,000 salary is also closer to not meeting their basic needs if some kind of unexpected expense comes around. Kate McInturf gave a talk in 2013 where she indicated that the dollar amount that it costs in a bigger city, somewhere like Toronto or Vancouver or Edmonton, to pay for the market basket of goods is actually about $27,000. So when you consider this low-income cutoff and consider those salaries, think about how much of a gap there is between being able to make your basic, meet your basic needs. Like if you were earning minimum wage in Alberta, for instance, your income would only sit at maybe around $24,000. So you might be almost $600, maybe more like $1,000 short of the low-income cutoff. In Toronto, that number is much higher. So you'd be clocking in at maybe $22,000 on minimum wage, which sets you at a 
$1,000 gap between your ability to meet the cost of the market basket of goods. So all of this shortfall in both provinces, however, is before the cost of childcare. So let's say you had a kid in either province. Well, the government of Alberta has estimated that the monthly cost for childcare for one child can range from anywhere between $950 to $1,200 per month, depending on where you live. In Ontario, that cost is much higher, and cities like Toronto have limited spaces. So as you can imagine, nobody can really survive off these kind of wages, and if you have children, the cost of childcare is prohibitively expensive. So how do we fix the gap? Well, feminists have been talking about how to fix the gap for decades, and people have developed these kinds of policies and strategies. They just haven't been implemented. So where is the political will to implement these kinds of strategies? The first one is a national childcare strategy, national housing strategy, valuing feminized labor, making sure that tax policy doesn't penalize women, enhance their dependency on higher-earning partners, or create disincentives to work, Modifying the rules for EI, eliminating workfare. Under the Canada Assistance Plan in the 1970s, workfare was actually illegal. Like, why is this not being changed? Ending discrimination, of course, and stereotyping and chilly climate. So if anyone has any questions after about this, I can speak to that more, more clearly. So when it comes to actually um, changing this, this particular kind of situation and building coalitions around this particular kind of situation, the coalitions that form between all men, women, and non-binary people who want to close these discrimination gaps wherever they are located at the intersections must actually be invested in re-envisioning who we value, what we value, and how we value. Valuing and envisioning new modalities of something called social citizenship, interdependence, and reciprocity. Because what is at stake is really the difference between life and death for some people. Thank you. Okay, thank Okay, thank you very much. Now, as I mentioned, our format today is slightly different. So we are going to have our question and answer period for Dr. Hodds at this time. So if you can line up at, where are we gonna line up, Annalise? At the mic up here. And here comes our first questioner. Thank you. It's because that mic is facing this one. Yes. Is that better? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm Mary Shillington. Uh, we are actually at McKillop doing uh, uh, Generation Poor uh, at our video night on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. So this just fits in very much with what we, we've been studying through videos and readings and so on. And I guess one of the things that we've noticed uh, is that it keeps going generations. So, uh, and it's affecting the, the, how we view things. And you referred to that. Um, there was a, a short video talking about uh, a woman who, who was, uh, didn't work for a year and how she, how that totally mentally changed her, her uh, attitude about who she was, homeless and poor. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you say a little bit more about the generations and about how it affects us emotionally and, and therefore coping. 
Okay, well, well I, I'm not a psychologist, so I, can, I can't really speak to how different people might, the, the psychology of how people are processing these experiences. But if you're living with constant insecurity and you're constantly worrying about when your next paycheck is going to come in or whether you're going to be able to afford food, you can just imagine the anxiety and the stress that that would, would actually induce in people. So, you know, and then, of course, if you have children and, and you're raising a family, your children are going to pick up on that stress. They're going to pick up on that anxiety. And that's going to have impacts in a number of different areas in their life, I would say. You know, like the ability to learn, the ability to feel secure in and of themselves. So absolutely, I'd, I'd like to watch that video that you were talking about. So maybe I could talk to you after this is over. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Thank you very much for the uh, presentation. Uh, my question is around the uh, asking you what, how you feel about the effect of the technological explosion that we're into today and its effect on, on this gap that, uh, that uh, we've ha had for many years and that uh, we see persist so, so dramatically. Okay. Um, uh, so basically how I would view the technological explosion is, is the ability of people to communicate and to share information, um, which is wonderful actually. So when you see all of those uh, women's marches that were happening all over the world in response to, to Donald Trump, that's one thing about promoting awareness and building awareness of this gap, right? So a lot of times people will say, oh, well, men and women are equal in this, in this society, in this country, and we don't really need to be thinking about these things anymore. But actually, because all of these reports are easily and readily available, you can look up the statistics yourself. You can find that information online for the most part, especially if you're somebody who's benefiting from the gap and you want to be able to work with people to close the gap, you can access all of this information very easily. So I think that the technological revolution, I guess, is having a positive impact on people's you know, ability to build their knowledge base and to be able to build coalitions with other people. Hello, Carolyn. Um, my name's Heather Oxman. Uh, I have a question I need to preface just a little bit. Whenever, um, yesterday night, watching The National, Peter Mansbridge said, Women earn 87 cents on the dollar. So I look at that number and I go, okay, that's better than 76 cents on the dollar, which was, it used to be. Um, whenever I've talked to, to people about that number and that gap, they've said, oh, well, that's because women take time off to have children. <laughs> and I just go, no, it's because of the things that you talked about today. Can you? Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of a gap, the 87 cents on the dollar gap? Okay, well, let's go back to, actually, I'll, I'll switch back to these. So there's our public sector slide, there's our private sector slide, right? So, so women are, you know, they're forced into kind of a situation, a double bind, right? Where you have to work full time to be able to make ends meet, right, to survive. But then you have to bear the disproportionate amount of care work whether it's elder care, child care, cleaning the house, making the food. In fact, uh, people have estimated that women on average in Canada do about an hour and a half more domestic labor than men do in Canada every single day. 
right? So when you factor that into the equation and the fact that we don't have a national child care strategy, I mean, sure, we have some tax benefits, but they're hardly enough to actually pay for child care in the amount of child care that you need, right? When this stuff is not being paid for, when this stuff is not being provided, then you have a situation where people can't actually get into uh, better paid employment, where they're actually marginalized out of it. And then compound that with the fact that, let's face it, we live in a racist and sexist society. We live in a racist and sexist labor market, right? So when you're going out and you're looking for jobs, these kinds of discrimination compound the jobs that are accessible and available to you. And all we need to do is look at, you know, the overrepresentation of men in certain professions and the overrepresentation of women in other professions. Feminized professions are on average paid less than those who are that are male dominated. And I always bring this example up, the, the hairdresser versus the plumber, right? And this idea that, okay, maybe they have the same number of years of education. Some people would say that the technical skill involved is very similar. And I bring this up to my first year classes, and my first year classes always say things like, well, plumbing is more urgent. It's more difficult. It's more important. It's more disgusting, right? So therefore, it should be paid more than hairdressing, for instance, right? And so I, I think when Kate McIntyre was talking about this in 2013, she was saying that hairdressers on average were kind of clocking in around $22,000 a year, where maybe plumbers were at $55,000 a year. Now, the overarching and more important question is, why should a profession, whatever you may think or however you may value hairdressing versus plumbers, whatever, you know, you have your own judgments about that, but why should some people be paid below subsistence wages to work full time? That's the question I have for you. Doesn't everybody deserve to have enough to make ends meet, to put a roof over their head, to feel income secure, to be able to have a sense of the future? So why do we have to justify gender discrimination all the time through all of these value judgments that we make about different occupations? I don't know, I hope that answers your question. Hi, Caroline. <clears throat> I'm Henning Bundel. I just uh, wonder if you can explain the ter uh, terms a bit to me. Um, I know what you say of racialized men and racialized women is that men and women of a visible minority, mm -hmm. but what I'm having trouble with is it sounds like racialized, it's like somebody becomes like radicalized or something. Mm -hmm. These are not people that are becoming something, they are that, so why those terms? Well, those terminologies, yeah, they are visible minority men and women, but because what I'm drawing attention to by using those terms are, is the process is the process by which racism operates in our society, right? So race is, is a social construction. I come from a social constructivist kind of paradigm. It is not an actual thing. It has very real material consequences, absolutely. Racism has extremely real material consequences. So don't misunderstand me to say that it doesn't. But what I'm saying when I say racialized is that this is the process of discrimination that leads to a bunch of assumptions about the inferiority of certain people and the superiority of other people and the abilities of some people to do certain jobs and the abilities of other people to, do, to not do or do other sorts of jobs, right? So racialization is about a process and it's about discrimination. Whereas when you say things like visible minority or you say that somebody has a race and, you know, statistical information uses those terms, then what you're actually doing is putting that discrimination in people's bodies, 
right? You're saying, because of your body, this is happening, when that is not the case. It's because of racism, sexism, homophobia, all of these different dis pieces of discrimination that these kinds of exclusions, these kinds of, you know, um, gaps are taking place. Does that make sense? Yes, I'm not sure then how the individual can be identified as that and that their salary rather than Because their salary, because people who are racialized are earning less than people who are not being racialized, their salary. Okay, Henning, 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 you'd have to go to the mic. Sorry, I really want to get this clarified because can you be a visible minority and not be racialized? In other words, if not, then there's an assumption that everybody that's a visible minority has negative impacts on them regardless. Yeah, and so in, in the context of a racist labor market, absolutely. There are negative consequences, right? Only. No, so not 100%. only. Just because I'm pointing to the discrimination that exists doesn't mean I'm saying that only discrimination exists, right? Well, so some people like can benefit. In a chart like that, that's what can it I looks have like. But in this chart, can, this, can these I, are the actual numbers, right? These are people's ages. These are the actual okay. salaries that they're Okay, we're going to go on to the next... Questioner. It doesn't pay to be married to the moderator. Uh, <laughs> um, Carolyn, uh, thank you for your presentation, your information. Ter Terry Shellington is my name. I recall reading in the um, Globe and Mail a few days ago a chart, their centerfold page, a chart of how different nations uh, managed uh, the wage gap or, or how it was reflected in different nations and both Canada and the United States are uh, at the high end of the gap, and, there, and many other countries are doing better. I'm curious, obviously there's a question of political will in Canada and the United States around this, but why have some other countries done better? Is it a matter of history, or have they used certain strategies, or? That uh, is Glenda's talk. Okay, that's <laughs> fine, I'll save my question for Glenda and we'll. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay, as the, as the moderator, I have one brief question, and that is, um, don't we need to teach young women going out into the labor force how to negotiate for salaries? Because I can remember when I was first hired at the university, uh, I didn't know how to negotiate, and I was hired at the bottom end of a salary uh, grid. Um, and I found out that my compatriots with the same background and education were hired at much higher levels. So it seems to me we have to teach young women to negotiate and negotiate hard and know what their qualifications are? That was a question. <laughs> I agree with you. I definitely agree with you. But then there's also this issue of gendered expectations of conduct, right? And so how you negotiate and how your body is read depending on who you're negotiating with, this assumption that, ooh, you're a troublemaker, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do that, and so we have to, you have to behave in this gendered way. So it's a very, very kind of difficult situation. I absolutely agree with you that we have to teach people to negotiate and teach women in particular how to negotiate and teach them a variety of different things, but I think we also need to work on discrimination as well so that people don't sort of labor under these presumptions about how women are supposed to act, and then so if you go in and negotiate, then it ends up backfiring on you. Thank you so much. Let's thank our first speaker.